All right, Alexander, let's do an update as to what is going on in Ukraine. Let's start with the front lines, and then we could perhaps talk about uh, Alensky's disaster trip, because it was bad in the United States, but boy, did it get a whole lot worse in Canada. And uh, we can also mention his stopover in Poland as well, which was very non-eventful, and I think that's, that's worth discussing. All right, so let's let's start with what's going on on the front lines. Has Ukraine liberated uh, Rapotinia for the thirty-second time? <laughs> you know, I'm glad you put it in this way because I, I, I'm now starting to get a real sense of déjà vu. And what I mean by that is that back in 2014, when it was the fighting there, there were all, all kinds of claims about tremendous Ukrainian advances and captures of places, Rabotino, Verbovoye this year, it was other places, I forget the names now, from, you know, 2014. And we were getting maps, there was, you know, the sort of Western maps, which are best based on these claims. And they were getting weirder and weirder and weirder, because um, they showed territory under Ukrainian control, which other reports and these were Ukrainian and Western reports, showed that they were still contesting. And it seems to me this is exactly what we have now. Um, There were more reports yesterday about more Ukrainian breakthroughs. They're no longer talking about Rabotino, I've noticed. This is no longer a topic that's any you know, open to discussion any further. The Russians talk about Rabotino, about fighting that goes on there, but the Western media, the Ukrainians don't. They're now talking about Verbovoye. And yesterday I was reading about how half the village had been captured, how the Ukrainians had broken through the Surovikin line there, about all of these things. And, you know, I, I, I started to try and find out where these reports come from. They all come from the Ukrainian general staff. They're contradicted by other reports um, from the Russian side, I notice, I don't want to, you know, identify people too, obviously, but there are even some Ukrainian channels that are now becoming openly sceptical about these claims. Overall, my sense is that the situation on the front lines is the same as it has been for months now. Total standstill. Wherever Ukraine is trying to advance, they're not able to. They're suffering enormous losses still trying to advance. A Ukrainian general, General Tarnavsky, has admitted that their advances now, their attacks now, all take place on foot. They no longer try and advance in tanks or infantry fighting vehicles or armoured vehicles or anything of that nature. So they attack on foot. They try and run across the minefields. And I want to stress run because if they advance slowly, The Russians can pick them off, so they have to run across the minefields towards the fortified Russian positions, try and get as close to them as they possibly can before the Russians adjust, and then sometimes there's hand-to-hand fighting. But overall, the story is no breakthrough anywhere. Everything is as it was, fighting in the same places the Ukrainians are stuck. That's my assessment of the situation on the front lines. Okay, so let's uh, shift gears now and talk about uh, Zelensky's trips. Uh, We have the U.S. trip, which we've covered, uh, actually, but maybe you may want to talk a little bit about 
what he did receive from the, the U.S. and uh, what he didn't receive from, uh, from the Biden White House. And then we have uh, the, the trips to, to Canada. We'll do a more detailed video on Canada because that's quite a big subject to, to get into on this video. But maybe you uh, want to touch upon his, uh, his trip to Canada and what he received there. And uh, then we have his return trip through Poland, which I think is a very interesting story that no one is, is really covering. I think this is the most disastrous trip that uh, Zelensky has undertaken since he became president and certainly since the conflict, the war started. I mean, this was a disaster at every turn. I mean, we've talked about his uh, speech in New York at the General Assembly. He then went to Washington. He met with Biden. He met with various members of Congress. The whole thing was an exercise in trying to get Congress to authorise funding. It is absolutely clear as crystal that he didn't change a single mind there. He wasn't able to persuade anybody in Congress that they should give him more money. And, you know, we know that there's the people on the Republican Party who are, um, you know, standing strong. They don't want to authorised funding for Ukraine. They're making this a big issue now. And it's clear that Zelensky coming far from persuading them to change their minds, it seems, if anything, to have hardened their positions. So, I mean, it was a complete failure as a visit. And even the administration, the Biden administration, which wants funding to be authorised by Congress. And by the way, Kirby has now come forward and said that they've only got a few weeks of funds left for Ukraine if Congress doesn't pass any authorization. Even the administrations uh, um, toned down uh, Zelensky's visit. And we've had this shambles about the attackums. So, you know, one moment there, you know, they're going to be supplied. Next moment, there's been no decision made yet. The point is, a decision has been made, but Biden didn't want to announce it while Zelensky was there. And there's two reasons for that. Firstly, because on the one hand, I don't think he wanted to give anything to Zelensky publicly, which would make Zelensky even more confident and even less willing to talk about um, fighting uh, and negotiating with the Russians, which is what I think Biden, or at least the administration, wants him to do. Jake Sullivan wants him to do. But I think also that I think that Biden and Sullivan and people like him calculated that if there was a big announcement about more weapons to Ukraine, attack missiles to Ukraine, it would go down even worse in Congress and would make any further appropriations, any further funding for Zelensky from Congress even more difficult to obtain. So where he was last year, the hero, he's not the zero. That's putting it too strongly. He's the minus. He's the person that you really don't want in Washington any longer because he puts people off there far from encouraging them to support Ukraine in Washington. It deters them from doing so. They don't want to touch this person. And then, of course, he went to Canada. And Canada is the one place you would expect him to get a warm reception. And yes, Trudeau is his great fan. Parla uh, Canada has a parliamentary system. Trudeau has a majority in the parliament, so he's able to ram through appropriations money for Ukraine if he wants to. 
and he did come up with a big aid package. There's a large electorate, Ukrainian, uh, um, you know, ex people from Ukrainian origin who support Ukraine in Canada. So this ought to have been a good visit for Zelensky. And it was a spectacular failure. It was the most embarrassing moment, I think, in his entire political career. Because, of course, he's, there's been these strenuous efforts to dissociate him from the extreme right in Ukraine. The people of, you know, let's say it straightforwardly, Nazi beliefs that there are, of course, many of in Ukraine, attempts to make out that this is all exaggerated in a Russian talking points. And what happens? <laughs> He's there in the Canadian Parliament with someone who actually served in the SS, <laughs> in the Galicia Division, during the Second World War, uh, uh, an organization, the Galicia Division, which is notorious in Poland, notorious in Israel, notorious amongst Jewish people all over the world, notorious amongst Poles and Russians and every conceivable person. And there he was with Trudeau, with the Speaker of the Parliament. I mean, this was a appalling. The imagery of this was absolutely appalling. And so that has spoiled the visit and shattered the impression and reminded everybody of something that they wanted to talk about, you know, they didn't want to talk about, you know, in the West, about this, what, what at one time, I think it was the New York Times, or was it the New Yorker said, you know, that Ukraine has this problem, <laughs> this far-right, you know, neo-Nazi problem. Anyway, they don't want to talk about it anymore, but this brought it, you know, center stage in the most public way so the canadian visit was a disaster and then as you rightly say he flew on to poland except nobody wanted to speak to him there nobody from the government wanted to meet with him the opposition apparently kept clear of him also he met with some polish volunteers but overall he clearly wasn't wanted there either i mean you know Talk about the cold shoulder. He gets it in Washington. He gets it. We didn't get it exactly in Canada, but it was a disaster for him there. But he gets it on an even bigger uh, level in Poland as well. As I said, this is a disastrous trip. And the sum total is, if you put aside the money that he got in Canada, which is going to disappear in a few weeks, it's not remotely, you know, Importance. It's not a significant amount of money relative to what uh, Ukraine spends all the time. If you're talking about weapons, he got small promises from the White House, and on the attackums, it really, it's, as I said, it it didn't go particularly well, and of course the trip overall has to be seen as a Terrible failure. Yeah, so I remember when we talked about um, Zelensky traveling outside of uh, Ukraine, we we said that it's, that's not a good idea. <laughs> we were like, you know, it's probably not a good idea to, to send them out and about away from his uh, protected uh, green screen environment. Because uh, the more people interact with Zelensky, the more they see him, the more they talk to him, the more they listen to him, the more they dislike him. But the, uh, the Biden White House, they did not listen 
to us. <laughs> they well, didn't they... listen to us. And sure enough, sure enough, we have now the, the PR media disaster that is uh, Zelensky. Um, and he is dragging down Canada. He's definitely dragged down Trudeau, but he's dragging down Canada. And, and that's, the, uh, that's the Zelensky curse for you. Well, absolutely. Um, sooner or later, it, it gets. It, sooner or later, it gets you. So, uh, yeah, we. I, I think we were the the first channel that talked about that. Keep keep Alensky in Ukraine. Don't take him out of Ukraine. But they had to take him out of Ukraine. Exactly. Maybe Can he I wants say, to leave Ukraine. Well, of course, he clearly does want to leave Ukraine. He wants <laughs> to keep as far from Ukraine as possible. But, I mean, can I just say again, I mean, what happened in Canada feeds back to the U.S.? <laughs> you know, all these people, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Josh Hawley, they are watching these programs. They, they, they know what happened in the Canadian Parliament. They, they, they saw it all there. So, of course... You know, and, and to say also, I mean, you know, I think people in the U.S., there are a lot of people in the U.S. who do care about what happened in the Second World War. You only have to see the number of histories and books and things that are written about that period in the United States to see this. So, I mean, publicising all of this in that, in that spectacular way, what happened in the Canadian Parliament, is going to affect feeling in Congress. All right, this is not a majority of people in Congress, but that the, the number of people whose doubts have increased is probably is probably significant as a result of that visit, and you remember we were getting all those reports just before that you know Zelensky was said was told to say well there were reports that he was going to come and say thank you, and we were saying that he's obviously been told to do that. There was little sign of that whilst he was in the U.S. Very few thank yous, lots of begging and lots of demands and that kind of thing. But no real sign that he's actually genuinely grateful for anything. He always comes with this colossal sense of entitlement. And the other thing is, he can't stop wearing that green T-shirt of his. And, you know, all that, all that performance. I mean, you know, by now, you would have thought that someone would have the courage to tell him, you know, Put aside the, you know, the Che Guevara outfit. It doesn't work any longer. It, I mean, it might have looked impressive in the first weeks of the war when you were in Kiev and the Russians were at your door, you know, it gave you an appearance of defiance. But, you know, if you're going to come to countries like, you know, address the Canadian Parliament, okay, forget it, maybe we won't talk about that, but come to the White House, visit the president, Meet Congress people. For heaven's sake, man, put on a tie and suit. <laughs> Look proper. I mean, he, but, you know, either nobody's telling him this or he doesn't get it. He doesn't have a good director. No. <laughs> That's simple. He doesn't have a good director. He's, yeah. he, he, he's taking direction from someone. Yeah. And the director is telling him to keep the, keep the outfit on. And, and the role has, has overtaken him. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he needs the director, whoever's the director, whoever's behind the camera. I don't know who it is. Is it Blinken? Is it Sullivan? Is it Newland? Maybe it's all three. I have no idea. But whoever's directing uh, Zelensky, just a new outfit, please. Wardrobe, yes. 
Call in well, wardrobe. Wardrobe, come in and uh, and fix it. And, and as far as gratitude, he can't display gratitude because no. he's, he's he's a, a spoiled comedian actor. He doesn't understand gratitude. That's that's not. He doesn't know how to how to exhibit those emotions. His his acting chops. He doesn't he doesn't have that in his uh, repertoire. That's my that's my thinking on it. But he understands that. Um, that uh, if he if he goes around and and apologizes, then then maybe he's giving ground, and perhaps yeah. then he's going to be maneuvered out of uh, office. You have a Washington Post writing uh, that there are many um, many senators and uh, House reps who are who are ordering him to to go through with elections in 2024. His wife gave an interview the other day, and she said that maybe he won't run in 2024. You have uh, Poland, which came out uh, and w- with a uh, with an investigation, the results of the uh, of the rocket that hit uh, Polish territory. Remember that? Yeah. Um, nine months ago, and uh, and Zelensky almost started World War Three. Well, interestingly enough, Poland has given us the results of that investigation, and they they've concluded that the that the missile rocket that landed in in this farm village uh, was indeed from. Ukraine. Yes. So you have all of these things now which clearly indicate that uh, no one likes Zelensky. Even his wife is telling him, leave, leave now before you, before they get you. You know, you have all of this going on and, and you have uh, Crimea and everything that is happening there and the Russian, and the Russian retaliation yes. in Crimea, which has been very significant. Absolutely. Airfields and the Odessa Hotel. Uh, it, it's it's not looking good for no. for Zelensky. It's not looking good for Ukraine. Not not at any level. Can I just say about this, which is in terms of uh, I think the elections are the actually a, a big story because up till this point, up to very recently, the West has been intensely relaxed, <laughs> to put it mildly, about the fact that Zelensky has shut down newspapers, prevented normal politics from happening in Ukraine. Suddenly you have this huge push for elections. It looks to me, frankly, as an attempt to leverage Zelensky out, to do it in an orderly way. You hold elections, either he steps down before the elections take place, or he does contest them and loses, and the West's preferred candidate, whoever that is, uh, wins the elections. Uh, and changes the politics because that's that's how it looks to me. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with that. They would like uh, an orderly way to, to get rid of this guy. Yeah. Uh, but what about? Uh, let's talk a bit about um, the the activity in and around the Black Sea because I think yeah. that's also uh, a big deal. We, we had a video come out from I don't know if it was the Russian Ministry of Defense that that put out this video advertisement or another group. I'm not sure, but the video hinted at, uh, at Russia uh, moving towards Odessa, which is interesting because there was another video that came out about a week and a half ago, which hinted at the Russian military um, moving towards Kiev. The, so the, is Russia signaling something? Yes, they are clearly signaling something. I, I, I think both of those videos, which, which show reservists, by the way, Russian reservists, and they're talking in the first case about uh, Kiev... And now they're talking about Odessa. I mean, they're clearly indicating that these are now objectives. 
and we've had this statement from Volodin, who is Russia's um, um, Speaker of the Duma, the lower house of the Russian Parliament. He's talking about Ukraine has only two options. One is to one is to capitulate, and the second is to be destroyed as a state. So that's that's you know where we've come to. With, you know the Russians are being completely uncompromising, and they're moving towards. It's it's clear to me that they're moving towards a position of um, ending the war militarily. And Kiev, both Kiev and Odessa, are going to be objectives of the big Russian offensive that is coming. Now, in the meantime, the Ukrainians, their counteroffensive, as we've discussed, is stuck. They're desperate to get some kind of grain exports going again. And, of course, they have to keep the impression that the war is ongoing. So they launch these missile strikes. They launch a missile strikes against Sevastopol. They hit the Russian Navy headquarters there. They've hit the um, dock, the place, the repair dock, where there was those two ships. They've launched various strikes, and, and they're continuing to do so. The point about these strikes... and I. I've made this point in my own programs, is that whatever the Ukrainians think they're achieving by them, what they're actually doing is that they're depleting fast a relatively small stock of long-range missiles, which is what they have. Remember, all of the missiles that we've been talking about, the Attackums, the uh, Taurus missiles they'll soon get from Germany, the Storm Shadows and the Scalps, Either they're not being manufactured at all any longer, or in the case of the Attackums, they're being produced in relatively small quantities to, um, you know, to fulfil existing export orders uh, that the United States has. So these missiles can't be replaced, and Ukraine is sending large numbers of these missiles at these uh, at, at Crimea trying to create some impression there. What's actually happening is that this targeting Russian targets, hitting Russian targets when they manage to get through, um, in which I suspect the Russians can absorb relatively easily, but they're expending a disproportionate number of missiles doing it because for every missile that they, that gets through, they have to launch six or seven that the Russians shoot down. So that's actually the reality of what they're doing. It makes for some spectacular headlines and it gives the Western media something to talk about. But it isn't actually strengthening Ukraine's overall military position. It might even be weakening it because they're running through their stock of missiles very fast. But it's also doing something else. It's provoking the Russians into a massive counter reaction. And we've seen this with this enormous drone and missile strike on the various positions, the Ukrainian positions on the Black Sea. Partly, it's part of this ongoing Russian attempt to smash the um, grain export infrastructure, which is clearly a major objective for the Russians now. It's also targeting these Western mercenaries, who are now clearly a target that the Russians are hunting. 
But the other thing it's doing, what the other thing that the Russians are doing, is that they're clearly coming after the locations from which they think some of these missiles are being launched and some of the facilities the Ukrainians are using to um, continue their attacks on Crimea. So the scale of the Russian counterattacks are much bigger than that of the Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. And at the same time, the Russians, as is now universally admitted, have a major production of missiles so that they can continue to produce missiles to replace those they launch. Ukraine cannot do that. So it's not a good strategy. It's actually a strategy which, for a time, will get Ukraine a lot of publicity in the West, but which has only a finite point and which is squandering assets, these missiles that Ukraine ought to be, might be, you know, intending to use in a more effective, could be using in a more effective way further on when the Russian offensive starts. Yeah, I don't think these, uh, these strikes, like in Sevastopol, are really gaining much traction either. No. No. To be quite honest, they're, they're, no. they're in the headlines maybe for, for a day and then they just yeah. drop out. Yes, I you, mean, we've had, we've had two matches. You can understand that it's not, even their PR is not, not working. No, it's not working because it's so, um, it's, it seems so insignificant compared to what we were being promised a few months ago. By this point, you know, it was, they were going to be launching missiles against the, against Crimea when, you know, seven out of six out of seven missiles get shot down and, you know, they do a certain amount of damage, but objectively not very much. What we were promised a few months ago was that the Ukrainians would be on the, on the Black Sea and they'd be shelling Crimea around the clock. <laughs> so it's, it, 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 looks, it looks pale in comparison with what they were talking about just a few months ago. And to reiterate again, the thing that the West, Western governments are really, were really interested in, which is the progress in the offensive, that offensive has effectively come to a stop. And Zelensky coming to Western capitals and behaving in this extremely arrogant and entitled way isn't helping either. Yeah. He needs to capitulate. No. That's not what's going to happen. They're going no. to maneuver him out. They're going to maneuver him out. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, we are we are looking at regime change in Kiev. You know, we've talked about it many times. People have talked about coups and assassinations and By all the that West. kind of thing. By the West, it's the West that is demanding these <laughs> elections. Russia. That that's important to understand. It's not the Russians either. Obviously, the Russians. I I think they past caring any longer what happens in Kiev. They, they don't have any expectations of these elections because they know that the purpose of these elections is to replace Zelensky with somebody who will follow orders from Washington. So that, that, that's not something that the Russians are interested in or care about at all. I mean, Volodin has now set out what the objectives are. Either Ukraine capitulates and accepts all Russian demands, which you know, would mean that the Ukraine we have known and which Zelensky is defending and which the West is supporting ceases to exist or Ukraine ceases to exist completely as a state. That's, 
That's the alternative that the Russians are giving. And the defense ministry is now dropping very heavy hints that, you know, once this offensive is over, this Ukrainian offensive is over, when the very much bigger and far more powerful Russian offensive happens, Odessa and Kiev are both objectives. Okay, we will uh, leave it there at duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and X. And go to the Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. Take care.